This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Every well, time I go away, the markets fall apart. I'm just going to really say, folks, did. if you're looking well, for correlation, here it is. <laughs> well, you said earlier, which is good proof that you were actually off on your boat, because you said, well, you know, stock's taking a breath. I was like, uh, it was kind of an ugly uh, end of last week, uh, Care. So, And it was. I mean, this is the third day that we've seen some yeah. uh, pretty substantial selling, and it's very much tech-led. So let's get into it. Set the Business Week agenda with Gina Martin-Adams, Chief Equity Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. She joins us on the phone from New Jersey. Also in New Jersey, we find Dave Wilson. He is Stocks Editor, author of The Chart and the Stock of the Day. Gina, I want to start with you. I feel like we're starting to get a sense that this is a sell-off. What Day three of this, to some extent, what do you make of it? What What's the way to interpret this? Yeah, so uh, toward the end of August, we started noting extreme overbought conditions in the S&P 500, and in particular, extreme overbought conditions for consumer discretionary technology and communications. And we had gotten so overbought that we hadn't seen such levels in years, which suggested we reduce or for some form of a technical correction to be led by those sectors. I think what's happened is we have relieved some of that overbought condition, but we haven't gotten to oversold levels where you typically see money come in and buy the dip. I mean, you usually have to get to an RSI between 35 and 40 before you start to see some stabilization in the market. So we're still in the process of relieving that overbought condition. At the same time, we also appear to be in a transition to new leadership. Over the last month, we've, we've done quite a bit of quant work. And despite the fact that, you know, the long-only growth portfolio continues to outperform long-only value, when you separate these concepts into factors and you look at the long-short growth versus long-short value portfolio, values actually started to outperform. So we are starting to see some migration of leadership, in our view, toward more value-oriented sectors that are expected to receive the bulk of the recovery benefit into 2021. And that's creating a messier market. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, when you have these kind of rotations, you have sort of a loss of former leadership, we have a bit of rotation into value, it's going to create a mess, and it's creating a mess at a time when we were extremely overbought anyway and due for some uh, momentum relief. Yeah, I feel like we're getting into a messy period overall between leading up to the elections, U.S.-China talk, there's just kind of so much, I feel like, uh, going back and forth. Dave Wilson, come on in on what you're seeing uh, on this Tuesday trade. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it looks like kind of a messy market at this point. Uh, you know, the one thing you can say is that the interest rate sensitive areas, utilities and real estate are holding up relatively well. Technology stocks are worst performers on the day uh, among the 11 main industry groups in the S&P 500. Remember, you know, technology, you know, the way that we think about it these days, it includes communications with the likes of uh, Facebook and Google's owner Alphabet. It includes that consumer discretionary category because that's where you find the retailers. And so that's where you find Amazon. So, you know, you put it all together uh, and you can see that what we're seeing is, to some extent, at least a continuation of last week. And then beyond that, I mean, uh, what really jumps out about today is Tesla down 17.5%. Yeah. Guess what? 
the S&P 500 index funds will have no reason to buy the stock because the company was not added to the index late Friday, as some had speculated would happen. Did we over-speculate that one, Dave? Because I think we all just thought, oh, yeah, no-brainer, it's going in. And there was just high expectations, and then obviously it didn't happen. Well, I had this chart out the other day in your absence, Carol, Mm. that looked at the market value of Tesla at its peak. Uh, It was about the same as the value of every other developed market automaker except Toyota. So there were like 18 of them. So it just goes to show you how lopsided things got. And uh, now that Tesla is not going into the S&P 500, some of that is going away. All right, GMA, last word to you. What do we expect for the balance of the week? What are the triggers we should be looking for? What are we keeping an eye on? Yeah, I think you continue to watch the price trend in general. We're back to correct. We've corrected enough to test some pretty critical levels. You want to see momentum hit an oversold level to really see, sort of solidify that the correction is complete. Hopefully we get there um, sooner rather than later and we can stabilize. But longer term, I think you look for a choppier market, probably right through the election as we see this leadership transition away from such a small group of names toward a broader market advance into 2021. Which is exactly what our market guest, Randy, Watts is going to talk a little yep. bit about leading up to the election. Less than 60 days to go. Yeah. It's coming. Amazing. It's coming. All right. Gina Martin-Adams, thank you so much. Chief Equity Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence on the phone from New Jersey. Dave Wilson, Stocks Editor, also joined us from New Jersey. He'll be back at 3.30 with his chart of the day and later on his stock of the day. Yeah. Just going back to what we were talking about with Tesla yeah. briefly, uh, Carol. Who would have thought Tesla, no, Etsy, yes, in the S&P. I just like it Loved blew, it. I have to say, Loved and I, it. it took me a while to kind of actually step away while I, while I was gone, and I really did the last few days. So to see that story and like read in over the weekend a little bit, and I was like, what? Yeah. Like, yeah, I just couldn't get my head around it. Well, Carol, you know that yes. one of the big stories is the vaccine, but it's more than one story, and it's a complicated one. And we also know that there's a lot of rhetoric around vaccines, a lot of promises, a lot of pledges. So we turn to our own Max Neeson. He is biotech, pharma, and healthcare columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. He joins us on the phone from New York City. He's got a great column out, uh, and he's also addressing this notion of mm-hmm. what are the drug makers actually saying? What's the reality here? So, Max, I turn to you with that question. What's realistic when it comes to not just a vaccine, but a safe vaccine that we can all feel comfortable with? Absolutely. So it, it's a question that, that's surprisingly difficult to answer just because everything about this endeavor of, of trying to get a vaccine so rapidly is, is unprecedented. Um, it, it is possible that, you know, the, the date you keep hearing for a possible vaccine is you know, sometime in October, potentially for the election, it's conceivably possible that the fastest running trial right now of Pfizer's vaccine could have some variety of data uh, by by that time if everything goes absolutely right. But the, the thing, the caveat there is that's just uh, kind of a based on some background statistical analysis of how many people they've recruited and and how much the virus is spreading in parts of the country. At the end of the day, if they have the fastest possible answer on efficacy, that will mean something of a a short change in in safety data. So this sort of ongoing focus on, you know, the earliest possible date, I I think is a little bit misguided. What what really the the focus should be on is, is how do we 
um, you know, set a threshold for even if we are willing to to make some well, some sacrifices and able to get something out quickly, what are we willing to right. accept? And I'd argue you need a little bit more. Well, Max, I love what you said, like if everything goes right, because yeah, everything always goes right. Like we know that's not reality. You know, what's needed for a successful trial that has safety as well as efficacy results that we need to see? I mean, is it time? Can can we do this without giving the multiple years, especially when it comes to safety issues? Uh, I, I think there's always going to be something of a trade-off when you don't have those multiple years. On the other hand, um, you know, given the situation, I, I think it's quite reasonable to, to move a little bit faster. And, and that doesn't mean that, you know, the second that everyone has, you know, has once you have everyone in the trial, if you have a few weeks of safety data, that's enough. You want a significant amount of follow-up from a lot of people. But it's worth noting that the vast majority of, of vaccine side effects, when they happen, occur relatively quickly after after vaccination. So while there is the possibility of, of long-term safety effects, the, the thing to watch for uh, most closely is, is pretty quick. So it, it's not to say that you'll yeah. have enough data immediately, but within a couple of months, you have a pretty good picture. Still, um, when you're talking about you know getting data just a few weeks after completing enrollment, yeah. then you're, you're, you're talking about speeding things up maybe a little too much. Hey, Max, does it matter whether I've been reading a lot about the different types of vaccines? You know this better than all of us. You know, there's virus vaccines, there's viral vector vaccines, there's protein based vaccines, there's ones that use genetic instructions, you know, for a coronavirus protein. So does the safety trials differ for each different type of vaccine? I mean, can some of these vaccines come to market more quickly without the safety concerns? Uh, I, I do think that regulators may look at the different safety packages a little bit different. Uh, they'll probably feel a little bit better, maybe with less data or less follow-up, on the technologies that they're most familiar with. So, you know, the protein-based, uh, virus-based, uh, killed virus, inactivated virus, those type of things. They they may be, one, a little bit more, and, and quite reasonably, I might add, for uh, the mRNA vaccines, those happen to be the, the fastest moving. And for these viral vector vaccines, which are, you know, a little bit more well-established, but still haven't been used in sort of a mass-used product. So right. uh, certainly a possibility that you want a little bit more safety data on a subset of the vaccines. Max, last question for you. You know, some of this comes down to sociology. Uh, I've been talking a lot about this. Uh, this came up in an interview that I was conducting earlier today. Do you have any sense from your work and anecdotally and what you're reading and hearing about the willingness to get a vaccine at this point? Because that ultimately is going to be really important. Uh, yeah, so I, I do hear both, you know, there's polling from speaking to people there, there is real concern about the speed of the process and about potential politicization. And the best way to address that is to make sure that the process is as rigorous and right. transparent and unaffected by politics as possible. I'm not sure we have that right now, but I'm hoping mm. that the ultimate decision will, will pass that threshold. All right. Thank you so much. Great context. Max Neeson, biotech, pharma and healthcare columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, joining us on the phone from New York sitting. Doesn't it make you feel a little bit more comfortable, though, for drug makers kind of coming together and to say, listen, folks, we're not going to do anything crazy? Yes. Uh-oh. What? I, I guess 
the fact that they have to come out and say we're not going to do anything crazy is in and of itself a sign of where the rhetoric is around this, to be honest. Well, maybe right. And maybe indicative of that there is pressure, right? I mean, we know there's pressure. But there's different forms of pressure. Yeah, certainly. Um, and and I think, but, but I do think sort of what I was alluding to this notion of in order for it to be effective, people have to take it, you know, and, and they have to feel that's comfortable right. with it. So that, that's um, true. it's a huge, huge issue. So we'll continue to watch that for sure. Uh, Max Neeson doing a great job for us there. Much more ahead. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly. On Bloomberg Radio. I think it's safe to say that if you work on Wall Street and you were hopefully socially distancing over the weekend, maybe at a barbecue, talking with friends, neighbors. This feels like Jason Kelly's weekend. It feels a little bit like my weekend. Um, Listen, this was the talk of the Labor Day holiday, which was, are you going back to the office? When are you going back? Do you feel like you're getting pressure to go back? Are you going to go back? What do you think? It is (laughs) the thing that everybody's talking about. And normally, as we said at the top of the show, this wouldn't be a question to be like, yep, Labor Day is over, done with the beach, kids are back to school, here we go, back on the train. It's not happening. I'm in New York City, and it's not happening yet. Michelle Davis, finance reporter for Bloomberg, she joins us on the phone. This, as you said, Carol, one of the most read stories, not surprisingly. Dear Wall Street, your boss wants you to come back to the office. Uh, So, Michelle, you've been talking to tons of people, you and Sri Natarajan. What'd you find? So, you know, this is really a story about a lot of the fear and tension and anxiety that's bubbling up on Wall Street right now with you know, many folks considering whether they should return to the office after, in some cases, working from home for as long as six months. And uh, over the summer, a lot of the banks started opening their offices back up, but they weren't requiring anyone to return. And for the time being, it seems like they still aren't requiring people to come in. um, But more and more people are, are starting to wonder if, you know, as they're reading between the lines of memos from their bosses, they're trying to figure out, you know, is my boss saying that we work better in person because he wants me to go back? If I don't go back, is it going to jeopardize my boss, my job? You know, there's a lot, a lot up in the air, a lot of uncertainty that's coming around with this, with the open endedness. And so what we're hearing is that as more and more workers start to go back over the next few weeks, be it because they want to get away from, you know, annoying housemates or they want to change the scenery or they are worried that, you know, bosses, their colleagues are going to think that they're weak. Um, Wall Street is going to be looking at this as, as kind of a, a testing period to, be, to see if, you know, social distancing can really be done in force from an office. And we've heard that at, at J.P. Morgan in particular, they executives there are going to be monitoring the situation to see that if as more people come in, you know, and the, crowd, the, the trains get more crowded, um, if things go well and infections don't spike, they're considering becoming more forceful in their language and saying, you know, rather than framing this as an invitation to return, requiring more people to return with the idea being that, you know, if this is going to be the new normal where there's not going to be a vaccine, you know, probably not this year, then let's get to that sooner rather than later. Let's, let's, you know, get more people back into the office because as well as things worked at home, like it's still important from a culture and control standpoint, um, at least in banking for people to be, you know, interface 
next to each other in person. Well, what's interesting, and I, what I love about this story, and I, if you haven't seen it, um, I think I put it out on Twitter. You guys should, everybody should read it in its entirety because you get into the specifics. Like J.P. Morgan, you say they've been reimbursing Uber and taxi rides to the office for traders below the managing director level, so they don't have to share public transfer transportation. Investment banking, you said that the firm has asked that 50% of its deal makers be in the office on any given workday. So there's stuff we know going on, depending on maybe what your job is. What I think is interesting too, though, you talk about those that are eager to kind of get back to work and how that can create anxiety in others who aren't so eager to get back to work. And I think whether you have kids, how you get to work, like there's a lot of factors at play here. Definitely. And I think what I have found most fascinating throughout this is that, you know, there's still a virus. And mm-hmm. two months ago, a lot of these banks were saying like, no, we don't want anyone. I mean, they're still saying we don't want anyone to feel pressure to come into the office, like do what's comfortable for you, what's best for you and, and your family members. The fact that conversations are even happening right now around, you know, we might get to the point in a few weeks where we're going to force you to come in like that. It just shows that we're, we're entering a new phase yeah. where, and that's what you guys are. That's what you guys are hearing, right, from the folks and sources that you've talked to. That that's where it may exactly. be going. Yeah, it took it. Yeah. It took a hard turn. It feels like Michelle. I have to be honest. And and really, what fascinates me about it is this notion that it took a hard turn. Just as bigger and bigger question marks were raised around what. I and I think others think is the biggest issue, which is schools. I mean, if you have young kids, if you have school age kids, especially elementary school age kids, this is a very, very difficult situation in terms of just the logistics of educating your kids and making a living. Absolutely. And and the public transportation, right. uh, you know, challenge is one that is make getting back to normal in New York especially hard. I, I thought it was interesting. One of the people I spoke to who we included an anecdote from the person in the story was saying that she just thinks it's going to be inevitable that everyone's going to return to lockdown in just a few months. So that's why she's a worker at J.P. Morgan. And that's why she plans to kind of cycle in and out of the office right now because she's like, it's probably the only opportunity I'll get to see coworkers because we all know how this story plays out. Like the second you ease up on guidelines, infections are going to spike and we're right. going to go back to the beginning. And I have to say that I'm thinking about that, that I'm like, I don't know what the fall and the winter is going to hold for us. But if there's an opportunity to get back to work a little bit, you know, um, maybe, you know, that that's a good thing to just connect because I am anticipating, and I think a lot of folks are anticipating that it's going to be maybe tough in the winter months. And we just heard from Max Neeson that, you know, let's be realistic about a vaccine, a safe vaccine. You know, a lot of the timelines that are being put out there are not very realistic. It's interesting, though, that you do talk about there are some firms that have come out and said, right, I think Wells Fargo, that they expect people to still stay home through November 1st. And I think for a lot of workers, it sounds like, you know, Michelle, they just want clarity. Like, give me an idea. So I I know, I kind of know what the rules are. around it. Yeah. Yes, it's the uncertainty that is probably the the hardest to deal with right now because you can't plan. Right, right. Yeah, that's exactly it. All right, Michelle Davis, thank you so much. Finance reporter for Bloomberg joining us on the phone from New York City. And I will say – It's the real estate guys. It's the real estate guys thing, right? Like, like, think it about that, the some sequence I mean, of stories that we've done, right? Yeah, absolutely. I it's think it's real estate guys. I think there's a generational aspect to it. Yeah. You know, it's like – 
you know, people of a certain age were raised in a certain way that you show up, you know, you get to the office and that's what's important and that's how work gets done. And they're not convinced that working from home really works. I still come back to the childcare and school thing. I I just think it's massive. Well, and I also, I also, yes, I don't disagree. And especially if you've got younger kids, I think it makes it more difficult. The other thing is, I think, you know, we're all just like you heard from Governor Cuomo um, earlier, if you were listening to his daily update, you know, you see it with schools, they come and then the cases go up. And right. so we've got to be very careful and cautious in terms of how we do it, because we don't want another outbreak like what we saw back in March and April and May, like. We just don't want to go back there. Come on. The real news over in the Cuomo briefing today, U.S. Virgin Islands off the quarantine list. I actually Let's saw, head back. Let's I head back. saw that for you and I thought, oh, oh the poor Lord. guy, yeah. man. Don't start. Don't start. <laughs> but they added four other states. They did. They did. No, the it's, it's a growing list. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. All right, let's dig into the world of Business Week economics. So excited to have with us, as we always are, Andy Brown, Editorial Director for Bloomberg New Economy, joining us on the phone. So, Andy, I feel like China was always going to be an issue in the 2020 presidential election. It has been a central issue in the presidency of Donald Trump. And yet it feels like over the weekend things ratcheted up another notch. Tell us what you heard from the president, especially around him essentially saying, look, we're going to scale this back. We're, we're, if not cutting ties, we're really going to continue to sort of sever them between these two superpowers. Right. So Donald Trump has now gone into full on decoupling mode. Um, And it would be, I mean, as in completely splitting apart the U.S. and, and Chinese economies. And it would be easier to dismiss all this as election time posturing and rhetoric and chest thumping and scoring points against Biden if it wasn't for the fact that Trump is actually backing this rhetoric with action. Mm -hmm. So as we've talked about many times, that the TikTok and WeChat bans and uh, coupled with threats to kick a trillion dollars worth of Chinese companies off U.S. uh, exchanges over over accounting issues. Um, So, you know, he is is really, the, the theory is that he's surrounded himself by this small coterie of anti-China hawks hardliners who reckon they've got this short window of opportunity ahead of the election to irreversibly change the trajectory of U.S.-China economic relations, to sabotage the whole project of economic engagement between the U.S. and China, so that even if, if Biden was to win the election, um, he would not be able to, to turn this back. So really is establishing a set of facts on the ground. Well, it's interesting, too, on a day where we were just, you know, interestingly, Andy, talking about Disney and, you know, releasing a movie and, you know, filming in the region where the Uyghur uh, Muslim minority group are and kind of thanking China. And, you know, it's just interesting. I feel like the complicated relationship that we all seem to have with China, whether you're a company, whether you're a country. And, and I do wonder, you know, what is the proper role for a global multinational company like Disney 
you know, when it comes to trying to create change in China, but also continuing to try and do business in China? Well, it, it, the Disney case really was quite extraordinary, taking advice from and thanking the government of, of Xinjiang when we know what's been happening uh, to the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, um, you know, held, held in these re-education camps, um, a, a global human rights issue, and Disney come out and, and proudly announced that they've set their, their latest hit debt. But it does, it does, it does tell you uh, a lot about the ch- power now of the Chinese consumer um, and what the loss of the Chinese consumer would mean to a company like Disney, but not just Disney, to semiconductor companies, to Apple, to Tesla. You know, pretty soon uh, uh, Elon Musk will be making a, a, a quarter of his electric cars uh, in China. It tells you what there is to play for here in real terms now for U.S. companies, who, by the way, extract something like $500 billion of, of revenue from China every year. You know, the reason, the reason that, that uh, Disney is so excited about this movie, Chinese cinemas uh, are, are open now, you know, right. and they're not open here in the U.S. yet, right? Right, right. So let's flip it back into politics if we can, because the China story is also how the Trump campaign is threatening its rival, or I shouldn't say threatening, framing its rival in former Vice President Joe Biden, who does have, I mean, one of the things that both works for and against Biden is his long tenure of, of government service at, at a number of different levels. How, what, what sort of reality and fiction when it comes to Biden in China? Yeah, so probably among global world, world politicians and statesmen, Joe Biden knows the Chinese president, Xi Jinping, uh, as well as anybody. He spent a lot of time with him when he was vice president. And, you know, he's, he's, he's flipped on Xi Jinping. He now calls him a thug. Um, you know, and uh, from from a political standpoint now, he's very much positioned himself um, as a hardliner on China. It's the only way to position yourself in this election season. So China is a huge issue. Each side is trying to sort of outdo each other to be hawkish uh, on China. And as, 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 as we've seen, um, the U.S., business uh, community is going to be stuck right in the middle of this. Well, you know, Andy, I mean, there's rhetoric, right? And there's talk, and especially in uh, an election campaign like we're seeing this year. And then there's reality of what ultimately comes down in policy. What would a Biden, you know, administration mean when it comes to a policy with China? And just got about uh, 45, 50 seconds here. It would mean it wouldn't necessarily mean a reversal of Trump's uh, trade tariffs. It wouldn't necessarily mean that the U.S. doesn't go for some form of decoupling. But I think it would be a decoupling that was more targeted, that considered the uh, the outcomes for U.S. businesses, and crucially, that was uh, formulated. Uh, in coordination with allies. Right. In other words, a smarter form of decoupling. Mm. Yeah, that that whole smarter notion of, of the West, I would, thinking back to 
John Micklethwaite's uh, column in this current issue of Bloomberg Business Week about sort of the the Western ally sort of putting mm-hmm. the band back together, uh, as it were, is an, a really interesting thing to ponder. Andy Brown, thank you so much. Editorial Director for Bloomberg New Economy, joining us on the phone. Check out his columns on Bloomberg.com. They're terrific and, and really must-reads when it comes to understanding what, as you said at the top, Carol, is a very complicated relationship. Well, and it has been for decades. This isn't anything new, right? And it gets increasingly complicated as China becomes more powerful and doesn't necessarily need the rest of the world as as much as it did one time. So I like what Andy had to say about a smarter form of decoupling um, is maybe what we would see uh, under a change of administration. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. Is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. And it is time for the drive to the close. Delighted to have back with us Randy Watts, Chief Investment Strategist for O'Neill Global Advisors, joining us on the phone. And Randy, really nice to have you with us. I feel like the last time you were here, Carol might not have been here, so it's good for the three of us to be together and knock around what's going on in the markets. It's been sort of an ugly trade, but underneath all of this is something that I think is, I can speak for my co-host, is fascinating to both of us, which is elections. It is really, really heating up, less than 60 days to go. And through the lens that you so smartly look at the markets, what does it look like? Well, well, a couple of things. First, uh, thanks for having me back on, and I hope everybody's well and, and healthy in New York. Let me just, let me yeah. just say that. Uh, um, in, in terms of the election, a, a couple of things. Markets and investors don't like uncertainty. Uh, when you have a presidential election, normally the U.S. market does sell off in September and October ahead of the election and then starts to rally once the election's done in November and December. Now, this time around, I think there's an added fear Uh, as I wrote about recently, that there's a very good chance we're not going to know who the president is the morning after the election because the number of mail-in ballots is going to be so high and it's going to take a while to count those. And I think that added level of uncertainty is really giving the markets a a reason to sell off here. I think the markets were extended both from a technical and evaluation standpoint, so they were looking for a reason to correct. It's following normal historical seasonal patterns, but maybe with a little bit more oomph this time around because of that fear that, you know, the day after the election, the election may not really be over. Yeah, listen, I think, first of all, thank you. We are doing okay, um, Randy, and I hope you and yours are as well. Um, You know, as much as we all write about, report about the, the possibility that we won't have an election outcome on election night, I think the reality of it is going to be a bit of a shocker. Absolutely. And you just don't know, is it going to be a thing where they figure it out in a couple of days? Is it going to be weeks? Is it going to be worse than that? I think the mail-in votes will be higher than it's ever been before in in the history of this country. And so that's going to cause just some some physical uh, issues with, with states, you know, counting more ballots than they've had to count before by mail. And so in the meantime, 
what do you do as an investor sort of armed with that information and especially looking at a market that is very tech heavy and certainly we've been reminded of that over the past few days how do you plow ahead or do you just kind of chill for a bit until we get through this even if it takes a little longer than november 3rd or 4th well well i think the first is we want to put a couple of things in perspective the market's had a huge move from that march low you know nasdaq is still even after today's actions up 21 percent year to date right now nasdaq is sitting right at its 50-day moving average we'd really like to see these levels right around here hold because you know it's still extended from a longer term perspective from its 200 day it's still 15 percent above that above that 200 day next nasdaq's now down about 10 11 percent from the high that is actually a very normal generic uh, corrective action for a market that's had a big move. So nothing really unusual has happened yet. But again, we would like to see these levels hold. If we bust, we bust through this uh, decisively, I think we could be heading a little bit lower in the, in the short term. And one of the reasons for that is that the breadth on the market has not been that great. Right now, only about 38% of NASDAQ is trading above its 50-day moving average. We know it's been a narrow market. And now I think a little bit of the air is coming out. I do think longer term, though, this is healthy action because I continue to think, given what the Fed is doing with liquidity and given where 10-year bond yields are, right now they're at 68 basis points, I still think, uh, to quote Margaret Thatcher, uh, Tina, stocks are the only game in town. There is no alternative. Yeah, right. I mean, as long as the Fed stays where it is. You know, I do wonder, Randy, too, what, what has you scratching your head when you look at this environment? What, what, what says to you, listen, we've seen this before. Maybe some of the particulars are different, but, you know, we'll get through this. I, I think the thing that's, that's uh, most unusual is the way people are so convinced that earnings next year are going to be gangbusters. If, if you look on, on Bloomberg right now, people are using about $162 for the S&P next year, that's about a 24% increase from where they think they're going to be this year. Mm-hmm. So the market has sort of baked in very aggressive both revenue and earnings assumptions for the S&P next year. Now, the S&P is trading at about 20 times that out-year number, which is not unreasonable given where interest rates are. But I do worry that those earnings estimates for next year could be optimistic. And what says to you, okay, I get this, I got this. You know, we've seen difficult market cycles, you know, I, I feel confident because of what's happened in the past and we'll get through this. I, I think I think two things. I think, as I said a, a second ago, you know, relative to bonds, stocks look yeah. very attractive. Uh, second, I continue to believe growth is the place to be. I know a lot of the growth leaders are selling off right now, but I think that's more of an opportunity than it is uh, a, a, a signal to, to completely get out. I think growth stocks are going to be the leadership in the market over the next couple of years. And so my advice, to, to, to put it more bluntly, is, yes, I would, I would dial back a little bit of risk right now and be on the sidelines, but I'd be looking as we get closer to the election to get more involved with the market and maybe to buy some of these leaders people have missed. Yeah, and if you look at some of the technical, especially even on you know growth, which is taking, you know you understand maybe why they've been overbought, so why they're selling off a little bit. But nonetheless, even when they get overbought, sell off a little bit, they just then resume their move to the upside, Randy. And I think the reason for that is these companies that we're talking about, companies like Apple, like Microsoft, Mm -hmm. you know, they have great balance sheets. They're actually gaining market share in this environment. They're growing their revenues. They're growing their earnings. And I think that's a place you're going to want to be the next couple of years. So 
while I wouldn't want to dive in today, I'd be watching this market. And if it pulls back further uh, in front of the election, I think that's more of an opportunity. All right, Randy Watts, really good to catch up with you as always. Appreciate your insights. Randy Watts, Chief Investment Strategist for O'Neill Global Advisors, joining us on the phone from Washington. Don't you think about this, though? Like, if we don't have an outcome, even though we talk about it, right, we have certainly, we have a lot of stories on the Bloomberg that are, are, you know, that it's a possibility. Like, if we get to the end of election night, it's going to be really weird. It is going to be weird. Yeah, I mean, listen, even though, as we've been reminded, and we had a guest on from Vote America last week who reminded us, this is actually how elections work just about everywhere else. You know, like we're not here, but not here, but not here. Yeah, yeah, fair. Um, But, you know, you know what else isn't working the way it used to work? Anything. It's 2020. (laughs) All right. I got it. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.